Welcome back to In Light of the Gospel. I'm Dan Blatz. <clears throat> it's taken me well over a year to finally get this next guest on. His name is Pete Friesen. He lives in Alberta. He's, uh, he was a good friend of my brother's growing up, and uh, they moved to Alberta together. They lived together for some time as bachelors, and um, got saved within a couple years of each other, ended up marrying sisters, and are now raising good families, both of them. And uh, he's been one of my best friends that has lived far away, if that makes any sense. One of my closest confidants for many years where I could share with him what I was feeling and believing in regards to scripture and he would bounce the ideas off of me and he, he challenged me in my faith, challenged me in my understanding of the Bible, challenged me with his passion and his zeal for the truth of the scriptures and uh, today he tells his whole story. It's, uh, it's really neat to see how God brought him through religion, through some years of depression and turmoil and uh, wanting to just give up and, and not even bother going on to now living a thriving, fulfill, fulfilled, happy, joy-filled life. So I appreciate you tuning in, and I hope you find a lot of value in this message or in this conversation. I'd ask that you share it, that you subscribe, whether you're on the audio format or on the video format, that you would subscribe to it and uh, maybe even like the video online. Those kinds of things all help for it to gain more traction and for more and more people to hear the message. It's not so much that I want to be heard, uh, I just want the message that I have to share and that my guests have to share to be heard. So I, I hope you understand that. So thanks again for tuning in and God bless you. Right on, I got another one on the line from Alberta. This time, uh, a fair bit of a different background and different upbringing. Uh, a lot of the guys I've interviewed and talked to have been old colony type of people who have a similar background, similar upbringing, um, no assurance of salvation, no concept of assurance of salvation, and so on and so forth, but very religious and very studious or very uh, restricted in how they lived and all that kind of stuff. But you, on the other hand, you grew up quite a bit different. You were never part of any kind of Mennonite church really at all, were you? No, that's right. No, I, I grew up in the German Church of God in Elmer my whole life. So, so yeah, that was a bit different than Mennonite. Yeah, there was a lot of Mennonite background people there, but not so much the the rules and the the customs, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, where it was, uh, it was yeah, it was it was religious, but it was uh, a lot more liberal, if you want to put it that way like with the clothing and the yeah we we always thought of the church of god got this as kind of grouch like they during their stalt you know they dressed in really fancy clothes and and they were all educated and stuff right yeah it did seem sort of like a show and tell on sundays eh <laughs> a little bit but they've changed drastically over the last 10 years as well or 15 years even right but absolutely like we're talking we're, I'm 45 now, so we're talking a long time ago, right? 40 yeah. years. Yeah. But your your parents were pretty involved, and you guys went to church every Sunday or twice on Sundays kind of thing, or what? Yeah, twice on Sunday, so Sunday morning and then Sunday evening at 7. And uh, on Wednesdays was, was prayer meeting. And then Saturdays we had German school because German was very, like, high German, not low German. Low German was kind of a probably the Jewish form of Yiddish. So it was kind of a lower, a lower end, you know. Um, so 
everything, the sermon, prayer, everything was in, in high German. And uh, when you're talking to God, you talk high German sort of thing. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Well, I know some people, even in English, uh, especially from the Dutch community, they'll actually, when they pray, they pray in high, like higher English, like or the old fashioned English, right? They'll, they'll say thee and thou to God. Uh, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. It's just the, that's their custom, right? That's the way that they're used to referring to God right. in more of a honorary type of language, right? Right. Yeah. So we went to church twice on Sundays, Wednesdays, and then Saturdays was Saturday mornings was German school. And so we were at church four times, four times a week until I was 15. And then there was youth as well on Saturday, on Fridays. So Fridays was uh, youth choir practice and sort of thing. So it was almost an everyday thing. Church was a big deal. Yeah. When, when you were young, did it matter to you or were you just kind of putting in your time just to get through it? No, I actually, I actually uh, had a sensitive conscience at the time. And I, I mean, I wasn't, from what my mom tells me, I said a while back to my mom, we weren't bad kids, were we? And she's like, well, <laughs> <laughs> so she straightened me out. We were, we, we sometimes disobeyed, which from your mother means like pretty much all the time, except when you're sleeping. There you go. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, where were we going with this? Sorry, I lost my how, how focused were you on, on religion and church or were oh, you yeah. just kind of putting in your time? Right. No, uh, when I was older, I started just putting in my time. But when I was uh, probably about nine, um, we, we had these special meetings, right, where it would get real emotional at the end and the, sing the most emotional song we could. And then there would be a chance for an altar call and that sort of thing. And, and you felt bad about the way you lived. And so uh, I remember, I think I was nine, nine or 12. I'm not 100% sure on the on how old I was, but I did. I sat near the front, so I didn't have to get up and walk, you know, in front of 250 people. But I did uh, kneel down right where I was there. And then you stayed there until the preacher made his rounds praying with everybody. And uh, I remember confessing my sins there. And he asked me what sins I did and so forth. And we and went through the whole uh thing and then asked for forgiveness and then he told me that I was saved so that that is one uh, experience that I distinctly remember okay but as far as having a kind of lasting impact it was just kind of emotional more of an emotional situation eh? um I I do remember that I put in a real effort at the time like like real hard effort to live right and to obey my parents and so forth at that time but as I reached like 13 and 14 and and kind of the friends my friends we all went through the same process and you know with with uh being sorry and and uh going up to the front and uh confessing our sins and so forth we went through that process and then but as we reached our pre-teens if you will 13 14 especially 15 is when it when you're in the youth and then you feel like you know i've arrived yeah you're a man at that point that's right um that's that's when it everything really changed drastically at that point and then it was kind of like i found something new and better which and was uh, just just the teen group just hanging out. yeah just hanging out but at 15 we we're already um asking people in the youth to think the older kids to buy beer for us and stuff and we started getting into drinking and 
and stuff at 15. Okay. I, I remember being aware of you guys. My brothers played pond hockey here and there, and I think you might have been involved a couple times, or maybe even ball hockey, I forget exactly. And I knew who you were. And then later on, my brother Neil hung out with you, with uh, Hain and Notch and all those kind of guys. And there was always drinking and, you know, everybody's driving big 4 by 4 trucks and stuff like that. But when I really got to know you was when years later when you had already moved to Alberta. That uh, mm -hmm. your teenage years was one filled with, with sports and alcohol, or how would you sum up your teenage years? That pretty much sums it up. <laughs> yeah. No, it was uh, it was definitely alcohol was the center of the center of it, and I mean up to nineteen when we could buy our own. We we're getting older kids to collecting all our change, our loose change, and we we put a pocket full of change to somebody and ask him to go buy us some beer. And, uh, and we would go cruising, go to mm -hmm. London or St. Thomas. And, and, uh, at that time, I mean, anywhere you went in, in any city, there was a local meeting place for young people. And, and, you know, St. Thomas had McDonald's and Burger King and, and so forth, all that there'd sometimes be hundreds of kids in the parking lot. And that's where people hung out at the mm. time so that's kind of what that deal was i see and um if you don't mind me asking what was your family life like back then i know things have gotten kind of chaotic and full of turmoil in the last 10 20 years but what was it like growing up well i think uh i think home life was kind of like church life where where you went to church and you and you heard your sermon but you the appearance was what was emphasized so how nice you looked and how clean your car was and what kind of car you drove and your status how much money you had was kind of your status in the community and so forth how much you gave to the church was kind of a status symbol as well because all that was printed out and handed out among church members so everybody knew who gave the most and uh, that person was kind of considered the most important but uh but at home home life was, was kind of the same way you went to church and you put your good face on and then you got home and then it was time to fight and bicker. And, and, uh, basically I remember my childhood as being one of, uh, a lot of chaos, um, from, uh, mom and dad arguing and fighting to, to the kids where it kind of carried on to the kids. And so it was, uh, it was, it was rough. There was a lot of anger and, and, uh, a lot of comparison, you know, and, and it was all self-centeredness and uh, me orientated for sure. Wow. Yeah, that's, it's amazing what religion will do, right? That's uh, paint, paint up your face and cover your issues and go to service with a smile on and pretend like everything's good. And, you know, on the way to service, you're fighting and arguing and bickering on the way home. You can hardly speak to each other because you kind of feel guilty about what you maybe heard and, you go throughout your week, but you just hope that by next Sunday, things are calm enough to where you can make it all happen again. Eh? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. No, we, uh, it was, it was rough. I won't go into details, but I mean, and you just heard a sermon at church about, uh, say, say marriage and getting along husband and wife, and then go home and your parents are yelling at each other. <laughs> you, you know, calmly bring up what about the sermon you know what about the, what the preacher said and then, then the wrath would get turned on you don't you, want right? to do that no but that happened a few times too and uh but but uh yeah I had a rough childhood but 
my escape from that that uh, fighting and stuff was to get out of the house, and that's kind of how the male race um, does things, right? Naturally speaking, if there's confrontation, you remove yourself from that confrontation. So I was outside, hung out, hanging out with the neighbor kids, you know, when I was young and uh, riding bikes with my friends around town. At that time, you didn't have to be scared of all the bad stuff, pedophiles and stuff. Like kids played outside and you roamed the town and uh, that was normal. So that's that's kind of what I did. I got a dog and me and the dog hung out in the woods quite a bit outside on the outskirts of town and and uh, so forth. But uh, yeah, that's mm. kind of sums up my early childhood. I see. I, I'm, no, I'm no psychologist or a psychoanalyst or anything like that, but it makes you wonder then if that was the, kind of the vibe in the home where you just wanted to escape and get outside and be with nature, with things that, that aren't chaotic, if that wasn't what kind of drove you to, uh, to the mountains and out to Alberta and whatnot, where you just wanted to be a man's man out in the outdoors or what? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, reading was a big part of my life, which probably was different than most when you would hear my story you'd think, you know, drinking and, and all, all that kind of stuff, those kind of people aren't really into reading, but even from, uh, you know, grade two, grade three, as soon as I could read, I was reading Hardy Boys and, and then I moved up. I read everything, like all my sister's Sweet Valley High books, you know, <laughs> um, Amish romance stories, you, like whatever I could get my hand on, hands yeah. on, I would read. And so it, it developed to Louis L'Amour and I really felt in a, I, I felt like uh, looking for the word with his characters. I, I I felt tied to his characters in his books who were often loners and they loved the outdoors. They loved the, the woods and the mountains and, and the whole simple life. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. What, what age were you then when you ended up heading to Alberta for the first time? Um, I think that was 2000 four so that's been uh 18 years ago yeah i believe yeah i started uh long haul trucking in ontario there when i was 21 and i did that for a few years and then i was had some issues and especially uh i i, I found i kind of blamed my life on my women issues <laughs> and and all my failed relationships in that in that regard and so uh that was probably the biggest downer in my life and so i i decided i needed a break from my friends i needed a break from everybody i just wanted to get away and uh leave my whole old life behind and start something new and that's why that was my motivation for moving to alberta okay well, I mean, we were just in Alberta for a couple of weeks and Saskatchewan especially is like super lonely. Like you, if you don't want to see people, you don't have to. You can drive for half hour without seeing a house. It seems like Alberta was a little bit that way, but not nearly as much. Right. So but you went out uh, originally to the mountains or did you start off east of Edmonton? Yeah, we we stayed in Vagerville at first and stayed with some friends there and. Uh, or actually in a hotel with your brother we we went to two hills me and neil your brother and we went uh stayed at a motel until our money ran out 
And then we're like, hey, it's time to find a job. So he knew uh, Lady Still Meadows Ranch and we we uh, phoned her up and she had a little bunkhouse and she had it, all it had was a wood stove and a bunk bunk bed in it. And so we stayed in there and we just did her chores for her and we could stay there for free and eat, eat their okay. food. Yeah. So she had horses and cattle and we took care of those, the feeding end of it. And she ended up finding us a job for a cattle farmer and we went and mended fence for him and so on and so forth. But it wasn't, it wasn't horses. We, we liked the cattle, but we needed the horses too. So we got a job offer from a outfitter that uh, was a hunting outfitter in the mountains. Guy came onto the property at the ranch one day and uh, picked somebody up. All of a sudden the truck backed up onto the driveway and said, Hey, you guys want a job? And we said, sure. And uh, he said, meet us in Grand Cash tomorrow at 10 o'clock. So we had to go to work and, and quit our jobs. And the guy had big plans for us. But yeah, long story short, we ended up in the mountains working, doing what we came to Alberta to do, which was to do the, the Western thing, ride horses in the mountains. No and, kidding. That's uh, about as lonely as it gets, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I got moved to a camp which is about 30 miles from the main camp on horseback. And it was just me and the cook out there for a month. So that was about as secluded as you could get. <laughs> was it all you had hoped for it. or did it get a little too lonely? Uh, it was, it was probably good for me, but at the time it did feel a little bit lonely. Like I was separated from Neil. It was just me and a, and a Mormon cook, but okay. we did, I do remember we had some interesting conversations about, about the Mormon religion and so forth. So that was interesting. Was uh, Bill uh, Peters with you guys that time or was that the next year? That was the next year, yes. Okay. Well, so there you were, a young 20-somethings out in the mountains of Alberta. And this kind of went on. I mean, if we could kind of fast forward your story a little bit, but you went in and out of the mountains multiple times and uh, you guys were driving concrete truck for a number of years and all that. And the first time I came, I think you must have been like, late 20s maybe even 30 years old something like that yeah i think i was probably in the upper 20s at that at that time 28 that makes sense i think neil was probably like 26 or 27 something like that right and i, yeah, I had, that was up go ahead I, I had been saved just a few years prior i came out of a pretty religious mindset i i didn't get into the drinking and the girls and whatever else that neil got into and uh neil seemed kind of aloof like he he was distant from most of the family but for some weird reason he responded well to my my uh admonishments or things like that i was just the shenanigans younger brother but he he was willing to listen to me so then we made that trip out west me and my young family, we just had those two little girls at the time. Maybe Ezra was there too. I think it was Ezra as well. But um, I remember coming to see you guys in Vagerville. You lived in that trailer then. Yeah, that, that, that's correct. Yeah, that was uh, probably a low point in my life for sure. I was uh, drinking fairly heav heavily, but it, I mean, it was a lonely life. And it was, it was just Neil and I and go to work and and uh, maybe do a little hunting on the weekend or something like that. But that was it. You almost couldn't wait for the weekend to be over so you could go back to work. I see. 
Yeah, I remember you guys were into hunting a bit. You each had a dog then at that time too, so. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, I remember remember that dog. Yeah. No, that was uh, interesting, but that was a low point in my life. That's kind of where I had made up my mind beforehand that by the time I hit 30, something had to change. So that probably everything changed at 30 where I really was like, I got to find out what I'm missing. So there was, there was a decision in my mind when I hit 30 that I, I couldn't keep going like I had been going mm -hmm. and being addicted to the things that I was addicted to and being without truth. And just the fact that, you know, the natural man goes through life as if he's missed, he's missing something. And I've talked to people at work about that. Like, you know, that feeling you get, you're missing something and they all kind of nod. Yeah. You know, like, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? All that, those questions yeah. that come up. And so I wanted those questions answered and I knew the Bible. The one thing that I had from my youth was that the scripture was the scripture. It was God's word. And so there was always that. And I think without that, I, I wouldn't have had anywhere to turn. I might've turned to Buddhism or, or something else. Right. But, uh, I turned to the Bible and it says, seek the truth. And if you seek it, you'll find it. And, mm -hmm. and basically my whole search came from that verse. And, and I, I almost charged God, you said it, uh, you need to make it happen. Like <laughs> you need to help me to find this truth because I'm seeking. Okay. Um, I know, uh, Neil started seeking quite a bit when he was up north. Were you up north there too then when it was up close to La Crete? Uh, what's that town called where he was uh, logging? High level. High level. Were you up there as well? Yes. yes. So, we both went up there and hauled logs for a year. He, so went, you, he went up there the next year as well. So you got together with that uh, Baptist pastor up north there then too or no? Yes, that's right. That didn't uh, stimulate too much thought at that point? Yeah, we, I mean, we went to church on Sunday, and I took my notebook, and I was taking notes, and and uh, being studious in that in that effect, and and it was part of my searching, and that was about the time that you know I was like I, I need to find something, and uh, but yeah, no, uh, Pastor Tom, his name was, and and we had a good good time with him. He he related to us well. He was a single guy as well, and. Uh, and he asked us if we were saved and we, you know, nodded. Yeah, I think, I think we're saved. I remember that being the truck with him, but he, he was a pastor that we could relate to. He wasn't distant like the pastors that I was used to. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So then, uh, uh, I remember the way I'm remembering it, right. I was in Ontario, you guys were out there, but, uh, Neil, we came to visit Neil. We slept in the backyard for a few nights out in a tent, and then we ended up sleeping in your house yet a, a night or two. And, uh, Neil was just like a, a lonely distraught bachelor type at the time. Both of you guys were living a little bit sloppy and kind of messy lives, but what, what else do you do? Right. What's the point? You guys just didn't have a lot of friends at that time besides each other and Ed down the road and, um, it was just, uh, it looked like a very, very lonely life, but Neil started kind of stirring at that time. Him and I did some Bible study. We went through the book of John 
and uh, then we started communicating quite a bit. He came out to Ontario, and I don't know exactly at what point he really understood the gospel, but somehow with the interaction with Pastor Tom, and then our visit to Alberta, and then listening to messages and um, listening to Mike Pearl stuff, all that kind of stuff combined, it really uh, started taking off for him. But then I remember the next time we came, he was in Westlock, and uh, I was staying at a family's house there, and then I preached in their garage, and you happened to walk in just as I was finishing up, or not, maybe not finishing up, just before I started perhaps, and I preached about righteousness imputed. Do you remember that or no? I remember that clearly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Neil Neil asked me to come out, and, and sure enough, I came out and, and uh, listened to that message, and I was listening to a lot of preaching at the time, uh, Adrian Rogers, uh, Paul Washer, and I, 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 I would go hunting and I have my earphones in and I'd be listening to sermons at the time. So, so I, I knew there was something here that we hadn't heard growing up for sure. And okay. I, I hadn't heard what you preached growing up. You didn't hear about imputed righteousness. I would have before that, I would have had no idea what that was. It's interesting. And even your, your so-called conversion at nine or 12 years old, somewhere in that range, that there was nothing to do with Jesus at that point. It was just confessing your sins and uh, bringing your heart before God and all that kind of thing. Correct. It was, it was on you. And so you uh, got your sins forgiven, but then you're challenged not to sin again, because if you sin again, then there's that wall of separation. And that's what I got out of it. So you had to live, you had to live right. And if you did not, if you did sin, then you would be lost again. You would have to do the whole procedure over again. I see. So then what, what finally brought you to, do you have a pinpoint where you can say, this is where I finally really understood the gospel or any certain explanation of it that really kind of struck home finally? Well, all the messages I listened to, they, they probably brought me to that point. But like I was serious about my search for truth. I would pray without ceasing i remember being being in the back of my concrete mixer truck and and praying the whole time i was unloading um at the uh, i remember specific times the stallery i mean i remember certain times where where i would just be like i'm 100 dedicated body soul and spirit to finding the truth and i want to communicate with god i want to confess my sins i want to do everything that i was ever told to do plus some so yeah. I was going to uh, Independent Baptist Church, and I would uh, go there, whether it was by myself or, or not, it didn't matter, And which is hard for a single guy. You're an older single guy, and you know, in your low 30s, and uh, to, to be in pu public and to go to a church, and to, it's, it's uncomfortable, and being around a bunch of families and kids and, and the whole thing um, for me was uncomfortable, but Anyways, yeah, I did all that in my search for for the truth. And I thought, I thought, you know, if, if anybody's saved, I must be because I'm putting the effort in, right? And had you then stopped a lot of the, the, the sin that you were involved in? Or was it just still living yeah, the same life but pursuing truth? Well, I, I was smoking. Like, I, I smoked for a long time. And, I, and then I chewed tobacco to quit smoking and then... And uh, in 2009 was, was the year that I got saved. But in, I think it was July, it was 2010, I got saved. But in 2000, I believe that's right. Anyway, that's when I, that's when I quit. I quit tobacco 
cold turkey. And I was like, this is part of the steps that I need to take to please God. And so I, I quit tobacco and, and uh, I quit watching pornography for, for a time, you know, <laughs> try, tried my best anyways. And, uh, and that was all in my pursuit. So I had to stop all those things in order to, you know, and just a little side commercial here, but it often happens with people that are trying to please God with their works that, that they, they knock off these steps and they think, and you tell them you can't do those things in order to please God and to be saved. You do them because you're saved. And, and that doesn't compute in the natural mind too well. And at the time I would say, yeah, no, I'm, I'm doing this because I'm saved. You know, I've done what you need to do to be saved, whatever that is, confessing your sin and, and, uh, ask Jesus into your heart and, and all that stuff. So that those were part of the steps that I took anyway. So I quit tobacco and I quit doing a lot of stuff that I was doing. And, uh, but there's still something missing. Hmm. And you, and you don't know exactly at what point it suddenly the lights came on. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. Um, Neil invited me over for supper. He just got married. So, uh, very recently. So I remember I went there to Westlock and visited them and, uh, and we listened to a message actually by Tremaine. I remember we listened to a short little message by Tremaine where, right. and, and then it was time for me to leave. And I walked it. Neil gave me a, a CD, Sin No More by Michael Pearl. And I was like, Hey, I'll listen to this. I had listened to some of his stuff like Roman series. So I took that and went outside and I remember Neil and I prayed together and got in my car and popped in the CD and was listening to it. And I hadn't gone that far. And he was talking about our identity in Christ, which is I'd heard about imputed righteousness. I'd heard about what Jesus did for me on the cross, but I had not heard about being crucified, buried and resurrected with Jesus. I had not heard that. Right. And so that really caught my attention. This was something new and it was clearly from scripture. And so while I was listening to that at some point it was about midnight and i remember driving through elk island park on highway 16 east of edmonton and throwing my hands up in the air and yelling and i'm pretty reserved guy i don't show a lot of emotion, <laughs> yeah i'm trying to picture you know. this but i i was serious i was yelling i was like i finally got it i got what i was missing because if god says that i'm crucified buried and resurrected with jesus christ then I must be saved, you Amen. know? And it's, it was as simple as that. I was like, um, now I got it, whatever, whatever it is, I got it now in Jesus. And, and that's the moment, the day that my life changed. Wow. I can only imagine Pete freezing, riding around in a car with your hands in the air, shouting and screaming. I do remember too, like I, I got saved, understood simply that Christ had paid for my sins and it was thrilling. It was very exciting, but I didn't know exactly where to pinpoint things or where to, where to point to exactly when I got saved. I didn't even know. But then like a year or two later, same idea. I was listening to the same set of messages on sin no more and recognizing my identity. Then sometimes as I was at work, I was driving on around on a forklift and uh, thinking about some of these things and just like 
jittery squealing to myself like out of joy and excitement just thrilled that I can't believe how full this is I can't believe how complete it is like it must have just looked absolutely ridiculous but I, I just was so overjoyed with the idea that I'm completely free not only are my sins forgiven but I'm dead I'm free from sin I'm alive again in Christ my whole identity is wrapped up in him right as very very thrilling for sure right because uh, you can understand that there was a time when Jesus died on a cross and the Bible says it's for my sin. I understood that. But when, when it was like I was placed into Jesus and I experienced the same thing he did, you know, spiritually mm -hmm. speaking, then everything changed for me. I was like, I'm not my flesh. I'm my spirit. And my spirit is one with Jesus Christ. And, and I am hid in Christ in God. And that is safe and secure. And it was that safety Amen. and security that I, I thought, if I can just know for one second that I'm saved, then everything's going to change for me. I knew that. And so at that point, when I heard that message out of the Bible, like it wasn't because of someone, someone's, you know, doctrine. This is because someone read to me what was in the Bible and actually believed what it said, didn't spiritualize it, just read what it said. And I believed it and that changed my life. And, uh, and that that's radical. And it was that acceptance and that peace that came along with that, that changed my life and that security for sure. That was uh, yeah. absolutely the turning point in my life, but like a hundred times over. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, I, when I, when I try to think of the power of God, uh, you know, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God for it. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. My mind usually goes to you and Neil. Like uh, the first time I visited you guys living in that trailer, you know, kind of sloppy bachelors living lonely and depressing looking lives. And then come back five years later and both of you married sisters, both found Amish girls to to have us wives and have these beautiful little children running around now, you know, 15 years later, however many years it is, it's just, it's, it's nothing but the power of God. And, and for you to define it that way, that I was driving along in my depression, in my sin, in my pursuit of God, and I understood finally that I am one with Christ and I was buried with him and baptized with him and crucified with him and raised again. And suddenly your life turns around to the point where before you were, pretty much set that you were never going to get married even like what's the point right it doesn't really work right. out marriages are miserable and now you know <laughs> exactly and I, I i can't really explain i mean there's people out there that can probably feel with my infirmities but the the depth of loneliness and despair it when you're you thought life was going to turn out a certain way you had such high hopes you know going through grade school you always thought it, you know, future is wonderful. It's just bright. I'm going to have a family. It's going to be wonderful. Then you have failed relationship after failed relationship and you fall into addiction and, and despair just grips you and loneliness and doing long haul trucking and not talking to someone for days and so forth. You just, it just, life becomes so depressing and you get to such an end of yourself and you, that you hate yourself and you do, you, you actually long to be out of your flesh because mm. it's leading you places that you don't want to go. 
you don't want to do the things like it's Roman seven. Yeah. I don't want to do the things I didn't get up in the morning and make up my mind. I was going to do the things that I'm doing, but I'm doing them anyways. I'm just like, uh, being led around, but, and it's, uh, it's a terrible, desperate state to go from that. And even reading your Bible in that desperate state. And it ha it's like this, none of this makes sense to me to the next day from day to day, reading the scriptures where your heart is pounding so hard because of the truth that's there that you have to stop reading. And literally that's how it was the day after I got saved, I'm reading through Colossians chapter two and my heart <laughs> is pounding so hard that I had to actually stop and take a break because the truth was so overwhelming. Like, how do you go? How isn't that the power of God from Amen. one day to the next where one day you're depressed and the next day you're rejoicing. And I understand that a lot of people don't have that, don't have that experience. It's not about what experience you have, but I think the level of despair that a person has to then getting the gospel and the good news and being like enveloped in its truth and seeing it for what it is and how wonderful it is. It's uh. It, I mean, the experience is going to flow out of that. The emotion is going to flow out of that. And uh, it wasn't, I wasn't seeking after emotion, but the emotion sure came along that's with right. the truth. And that, that's really is a problem of a lot of institutional Christianity is somebody once experienced something emotional when they came to grips with truth and they had this big breakdown or they had the big emotional high. They were yelling and screaming and laughing out loud like I did. And then they try to go and help people to repeat that experience. And that's right. where you get these altar calls, you get these uh, pleas for people to come in and long, emotional, drawn out invitations and all missing the point that the response, emotional response was to the grounding of the truth, right? And so that's been my pursuit ever since, ever since I understood this is when I'm preaching, when I'm teaching, when I'm sharing with anybody, it's always to try to bring them to the truth that made me emotional, not to the emotion that I was responding with, right? said yeah no absolutely that that is 100 percent. that's why also paul said i came and preached the gospel to you not not with wisdom of words and so forth not to try to stir your emotions but just to preach the truth about jesus christ and that is what brings about the emotion yeah Amen. absolutely so now you're like i said living with uh, suzanne your wife and you guys have four children yeah that's right that's right. And I actually mentioned in church last week, just to backtrack a little bit, that I wouldn't be married if I wouldn't have got saved because that's right. I was a, I was a wicked, sinful person. And I viewed Suzanne as pure as the driven snow and, and the two don't mix. And so I couldn't, I could never without understanding the gospel, knowing that God's righteousness is imputed to me and that I've been cleansed and I'm a new man. Now I, I, I can freely with a good conscience, marry this, this pure, you know, woman that's never been in a relationship before. And I can, I can, you know, bring the two together, like coincide the, that idea Yeah. Um, before that would have never happened. So really without, without God, I would not be married. I would not have kids. I would not, I would not be happy. I would, would not be joyful. I wouldn't have anything. I would, I might be. I might be dead. Very likely, I might be dead. Like, 
Well, can you imagine another 10, 15 years of that depressed, lonely state, right? Of searching, right. but never really truly finding. That uh, sounds very depressing indeed. Absolutely. Now I'm married. I got four, four of the best kids there is in my estimation. They're good kids. <laughs> and for sure. uh, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm living the dream for sure. Man, that's awesome. Yeah. Praise God for sure. Um, yeah. One of the things that, uh, that you seem to have really emphasized since you've gotten saved. And I think probably because it stood in your way for so long was this concept of institutional Christianity, right? Where it's just um, a Sunday morning service or a Sunday evening service, kind of like you were raised in that routine of, of mm -hmm. worshiping God and serving God, but no God in it. Right. And so right. maybe, maybe go on your little rant there. If you have something you'd like to say. Well, that, the thing with an institution is it start it it could start for the right reasons and everything, but soon it becomes not about the message but about the institution, and that takes the forefront. So it's really a building program. It's really a corporation, and most uh, most of the churches nowadays have have like a sales team where their goal is through the music and the the lights and the stage and, you know, the whole thing, let's put together a performance so we can attract more people so that we can take in more money. That seems like, and so the, the message in the midst of that gets lost. Mm -hmm. but what, what was the point of us all getting together? Because if we want emotion and a crowd, um, I can go to a hockey game. Like I, I, I like hockey and I've been, I've been to NHL hockey games there's a ton of emotion there and music is loud a ton. And when everybody 20,000 fans chanting, let's go Oilers or Leafs or whatever. I mean, I mean, it's, it stirs something in you and everybody singing the national anthem. Like everybody's on the same page. There's a lot of emotion. So if you want an emotion in a crowd, go to a hockey game. But if you want to want the truth, you need to meet with people that where the truth is being spoken. And so it's not about the building. It's not about the hierarchy. It's not about anything except getting together and encouraging one another through the, the good news concerning Jesus Christ. And that's got to be the emphasis. It can't, can't be on fruits. Uh, it can't be on, uh, on gifts, you know, spiritual gifts. It can't, the emphasis can't be on works. Um, and it, it can't be on any of that. It's got to be on Jesus Christ. And I find that most institutional type churches, they, their emphasis is wrong. And they've, just by putting the emphasis on the wrong thing, they've enshrouded the truth, like kind of like a corn husk. It's buried in there. It's there. And it's even spoken about. It sometimes. gets sung about at times. Right. Right. And I used to go to church shortly after I got saved, I was, I was still going to a certain church and, and I would count the number of times Jesus was mentioned in the sermon in the whole sermon Sunday morning. And usually it was about three or four times. And I thought, what a shame, you know, and I, I remember a quotation from Charles Spurgeon. He said, uh, no Christ in your sermon. He said, well, then go home and never preach again until, <laughs> you know, Christ is, is the center. That's and right. I, I truly believe that. I think, I think if we, if we miss Jesus, then there's no point in getting together. It's like Paul says, if Christ be not risen, as some of you say, then our, 
our faith is vain. Yeah. Then we, we might as well, well drink, and eat and drink and, and be merry for tomorrow we die. What's the big deal, right? Right. Yeah, I really like that. Exactly. Um, if, it, if it's not about Jesus and if you're focusing on the different aspects of Christianity, well, what do you guys think about church leadership? What do you guys think about church music? Or how do you guys function this way? Or what do you guys do about that? And I don't like the way that your church does this. I don't like the way your church does that. What do you like about Jesus? Or what do you think about Jesus? Is he right. who he said he was? If he is the Son of God, if he is God in the flesh, then everything else can kind of fade to the background for now. And you have to focus on who is he? What is the point of him? I'm, I was another Charles Spurgeon quote, and I can't quote it exactly, but it was something along the lines of he would sooner, like he said, basically, the whole Bible is about Jesus. All the Old Testament prophecies, all the stories kind of illustrate who he is and point to who he is. And he would rather have a preacher err on the side of having squeezed Jesus into a text. But usually you don't need to do that because he's in almost every text, you know, without really having to search that far. And I forget how he said that, but he, he would much rather a preacher fail on that side than to, to preach a whole sermon and not have Christ in it at all, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and I find if the emphasis were on Jesus and people, people were like, you know what, I'm just going to focus on Jesus. I'm going to focus on who I am in him, and I'm going to live from him. As Paul says in Galatians, no longer I that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me. And if that was... Our focus, I think a lot of the petty uh, jealousy um, comparison, that comparison thing, man, that's that's a killer. Yeah, people comparing themselves with one another and uh, that person's maybe I'm more spiritual than somebody else and so forth. And it it kind of lends the idea that that you're higher in God's sight than someone else is, perhaps. But especially the petty differences and, you know the inability to forgive is another thing you know he said this about me so i'm not going to forgive him and a lot of those things would just fly by the wayside if we were just in love with jesus and just focus on what he what he did um i i don't think i can emphasize that enough yeah yeah the apostle, the apostle paul gives our uh encouragement to forgive based on he says forgive one another even as god for christ's sake hath forgiven you right so based on the right. fact that you have been forgiven that's how on the same basis you know so how did god forgive me when i was worthy or when i was unworthy when i had confessed properly or when i had just simply trusted him when i had trusted him i came to christ for forgiveness and he forgave me through the death burial resurrection of jesus and so now i can also extend that forgiveness and that love for other people, even even if they have genuinely failed me or hurt me, right? Right, right. And that's why I say the gospel is pretty much the answer to all of your fleshly problems. And the more the more we get uh, walking after the flesh, and, and I don't mean getting into pornography or, or anything bad. I'm just talking about um, seeing each other as just regular humans, as if we never got saved that kind of what paul said to the corinthians about are you not carnal you know you're you're talking about who got baptized by who and and mm -hmm. all this stuff like seriously but all that stuff goes away when the focus is like, like paul said i came i came to you and preached the gospel and with nothing else mm -hmm. just jesus get your focus on jesus and then you'll stop all those other other things, all those other things won't matter as much anymore. And it's floored me since since I got saved. I, I was in shock 
because I was obsessed after, after I got the truth, I was just obsessed with scripture. And I just figured that everybody else that got saved was the same as me. And, uh, and when you get grounded, you get saved and you get grounded in the truth and you understand the scriptures and you understand it right, rightly divided. Um, you can't be misled at, to a large extent. Like, like you see a lot of people and it seems like a lot of people are misled. They're, they're taken by, by stuff that is concerning the flesh, riches, health, emotion. Those are three things people are led away by. Yeah. And it's, it's about enlarging yourself, your reputation and, and, and all those things. And that's not important. What's, what's important is I'm in God's family and I'm secure there. And one day I'm going to rule and reign with him forever. Right. And in the end, that's all that matters. And, and it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, right? I, I taught the right. book of Titus while I was out there. And there's a, a major emphasis in that book on good works and on adorning the doctrine of God. Uh, at one point, he talks about adorning the gospel, adorning the doctrine. And then at one time in chapter 2, to women, he says that if they don't uh, honor their husbands or love their husbands, raise their children, keep the home, so on and so forth, that they... Uh, are on the brink of blaspheming the word of God. So now I think about it, we're, we're saved not by works which we have done, but by his grace he saved us. And it's all that purely, continuously. There's never any, any moment do any of my works come into the picture as far as me being saved or getting saved or staying saved. But now that I'm presenting the gospel to people, presenting this good news, Paul basically just says, now adorn yourself so that you beautify the gospel, so that you make it more attractive. If you don't, you blaspheme the word of God. And so, of course I want to do what is right. Of course I want to live righteous. But it's never in any way to give me more peace with God. You know, on my worst day, I feel full access to God. I know I have full access to God, because I'm not getting to God based on anything that I did or didn't do. And on my best day, I don't think that I have more access somehow, or that I'm somehow closer. It is purely 100% of the time the grace of God that gets me saved and keeps me saved and keeps me accessible to God, right? Right, right. Yeah, after I got saved, because I was trusting so much in my works before that, um, after that, I, it was almost like, you know what? I don't want to focus on that. As a woman that is recently married to a husband, is, is not thinking about cheating on her husband. I was like, as long as I'm, I'm, I'm in love with Jesus and I'm just in love with this, this book, and the gospel that's in it and just stay excited about that. If I see someone that needs help, I'm going to help them and all that, but I'm not even going to think about that. Um, my opinion has changed a little bit from that. And it's actually from non-Christian sources where before I was like discipline didn't really matter. Um, a lot of things like works wasn't cool. Like discipline stopped mattering when you understood the gospel. Yeah. It, it wasn't that I became more undisciplined in a lot of ways i was more disciplined but it was unconscious it just happened yeah like like where i wasn't uh, addicted to things that i was before and so forth but it was actually through uh you know guys like jocko willink and, and jordan peterson that that works actually became and discipline actually became an interesting concept to me mm -hmm. and cool where where Jocko was talking about being a good seal and what does it mean to be a good seal? And he said, it's, it's looking out. I found out later in my career, it was a, not about being the most talented guy. It was not about any of that. It was about caring for your buddy and checking to make sure that 
uh, his parachute's going to open, checking to make sure that his appearance is is right when inspection comes. It's it's about it's about first looking for your buddy and looking out for him before you look out for yourself. And I thought that was pretty cool. Well, I mean, when you look back now at the epistles, Paul's writings are chock full of that kind of stuff too, right? Bear one another's burdens, yeah. you know. Right. I think this unselfishness that that they learn in the military is is it seems like especially maybe in the seal teams from what jocko willing says is uh more radical than what is taught in christian circles like it's more christian than christ than christianity yeah. teaches and and it is the radical stuff that is spoken about in the bible and i think if we if there was a lot less i in our christianity i think uh, we'd all be better off yeah. I know Jocko's got a book that I haven't read yet. It's called uh, Extreme Ownership. And that whole concept is as biblical as biblical can be, right? I mean, it's, it, is, it is basically Christ taking extreme ownership for all that was not his fault. You know, he, was bo he bore our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And he took extreme ownership for something that he could help. But it wasn't his fault. It wasn't his responsibility. And so now how does that translate? As, as a father, everything that happens in my household, from my wife down mm. to my little kids, it's not all my fault. They have all their faults as well. But it's all under my responsibility, under my care. I have to take extreme ownership for that. At work, everything that I could have done, even if my employer or my, my foreman or something isn't doing everything that they should be doing, I could just be like, well, it's not my responsibility. That's the boss's job. But I could have changed it. Now I'm going to take ownership for the part that I could have done something different on, right? And just in every way, when it comes to church, when it comes to family, when it comes to anything, you can take extreme ownership. And, and Jocko, the only part that he seems to be missing is the fact that it's about Jesus. And that's why extreme ownership makes the most sense, right? Right. Absolutely. And I think that ownership, I mean, when you think that Christ died for sinners, in order to be saved, you have to own that. And I think that's what first John one nine is. It's you got to own your sin. You got to own it's it's your fault. Yeah. It's nobody's fault other than your own. And you had the decision, you had the decision, you had the know-how, and you could have made the right decision and you didn't your whole life. Right. Your whole life has been one of failure. And that's why God we're going through Romans one and two right now. And that's what that's about. It's about ownership. It's about there's none righteous, not one. They're all unprofitable and and personally <laughs> responsible for their sin, not because of what Adam did, but because we yeah. knew and we didn't do it. And that's why we are blameworthy. And so I, I think you have to own that in order to get saved. And then there's a lot of instances, you know, in church families that that we can own stuff that we don't we don't react right we overreact or we respond in a very negative way to what someone says and then there's unforgiveness and so forth and i i think that we need to i think ownership comes up in that yeah. aspect as well funny enough though there's uh, several christian doctrines so-called christian doctrines anyway that uh, kind of strip ownership away from people it seems depending on how people teach it the whole doctrine of the sinful nature it's like, well, I can't help it. That's just who I am. Or a lot of Christian psychology has made its way into the church as well, where, um, you know, you're a number this, or you're, you're that kind of person, and that's why you are the way that you are. And so then anytime you struggle with that one particular issue, you just kind of pin it back to, well, that's because I'm 
this kind of person or that's because I was diagnosed as this or that's because my sinful nature made me do it and there's nothing I could I couldn't have done otherwise right and so I heard one preacher once say in regards to the sinful nature he said that um, just as it is a bird's nature to fly and a fish's nature to swim so it is man's nature to sin and I thought well that's a perfect excuse you know you're gonna go shoot mm -hmm. all those birds in the air for flying around how, how dare they you know what are they doing they're not allowed to do that. It, it doesn't make any sense, but it strips people of ownership. And I, I think that's been my major problem with that doctrine. Now, I know people who teach those words, sinful nature, doctrine, or original sin, and they don't mean that. So I don't nitpick on everybody that talks about it. But there is a certain way of believing those things that kind of takes the onus away from the believer or the individual and just kind of says, well, I couldn't help it. There's nothing I could have done differently. Exactly. And I, I mentioned Calvinism the other day in front of my 10 year old and son, and he's, and he said, what is that? And I said, well, basically, I, I just explained to him sinful nature and what you just said and total depravity. And he said, well, that's a good excuse, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so a, a 10 year old understands the issue and, and it's a cop out. It's a cop out and, and it's not biblical that, uh, that we have a nature to sin and therefore we can do nothing but sin. And I've had uh, someone tell me that the only choice he has is what sin to do. Yeah, that's right. Not whether, whether or not to sin. And so it would be harsh for God to judge uh, his people or, or, you know, men, men and women in general, yeah. when they didn't have any choice. I know there, there might very well be a guy or two listening to this later on who would disagree with me and maybe would be kind of a more Calvinistic leaning and uh, they would think we're not being very fair with their position. And understandably so, when I talk to these guys, that's not what they would say they believe. What I'm arguing against though is that if you take the arguments of Calvinism and the total depravity back to its basic form of what it's actually saying, then that is what it's saying. You might not believe it that way. Right. Uh, but if you go back or even if you read some of Calvin's statements about who people are and why they sin, it's like, whoa, that one. Well, then what could we have done differently? Right. Like this is who we were created to be. Right. Right. But I, I, if someone were to do something uh, wicked and evil to them, they wouldn't simply say, oh, well, that they were just programmed that way. They would have wanted to hold that person personally responsible. Right. So there's yeah. there's a issue of holding a doctrine that you don't really believe in practice but again they've got they've got arguments for all of those things where if you listen if you ever talk to a really astute calvinist who's actually thought things through they've they've thought about these things and they have you know god's god's will is being done on one hand and there's nothing we can do differently but what we perceive and what we actually live sometimes in a way almost feels like a different thing right where there's god's reality and there's our reality so in our reality we are living as free and we can choose but ultimately, God has already predetermined and there's nothing you can... Anyway, we kind of got off topic here anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So um, one thing that uh, when you first got saved, you were very active on Facebook and on... Uh, was it... It was mostly just Facebook, right? Yeah, that's correct. I didn't have Twitter or anything. Right. And obviously, I, I sometimes miss those days where you would put out post after post after post where it was like, yes, that's it, right on. You were a little harsh and direct and blunt, but it, it was needed. It was like a, a sledgehammer that needed to pound through some error. And I know you made some 
some uh, ripples for sure. I think of our friend, mutual friend John Newdorf and how he came to the faith through some of your comments and interactions online, things like that. Why did you step away from all social media? Well, it was probably the the idea. I don't know. I, I got into the privacy concerns with, with Facebook and stuff. And, and uh, you do start thinking, you know, um, you know, uh, the government is watching everything. And, you know, I got in the pedophile files and the everything and you got pictures of your kids on there and and the whole thing just started to maybe it's part of being in secluded because we're out kind of in the middle of nowhere here in alberta and uh it, it's just like i don't want the oversight the it was just basically the privacy thing that that kind of gotcha. stopped me but i have thought about opening a another one and then you know no pictures but just just uh preaching the truth because right. it's not that I care whether whether the government knows that I'm preaching the gospel or not. I'm not I'm not worried about that. Right. Yeah, because I know um, for myself, I'm my wife would sometimes wish that I hadn't posted any pictures of our kids anywhere, and she her Instagram account is private for that reason that you know it's not publicly shared. I've used it more as a try to make use it as a platform to just share the gospel and and gather as many. You know friends that at least people i know to some degree who, who know me through somebody and then just make it as big as i can to try to get more of the gospel message out there right mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah no um i just recently had someone message me and say too that they they missed uh me on facebook so maybe i'll have to make another account there you go well, maybe after this, a bunch of people that uh, listen to this can find you on Facebook and give you a follow there at some point. Yeah, maybe, I, I do have a YouTube channel, but I, I haven't really put any videos up yet. Maybe I'll start doing some of that too. There you go. I'm open to it. Well, I know um, before the days of Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, people witnessed, you know, people shared the gospel with people one-on-one. -on -one. And I did a fair share of that on the streets and stuff like that. And now it just seems that the most effective method, and that's not always necessarily the best method, the most effective method seems to be online where people can log on themselves and watch it when they want to or read it if they want to. And they're open immediately because they click on it. They are the ones watching it. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not, you're not intruding into their space as much, right? But I know you guys, you and my brother Neil and Joe and Gerald and a few others, Isaac Penner and them, you guys have been fairly active, even just on your Sunday mornings, um, sharing the gospel with local people and all that kind of thing, eh? Yeah, yeah, we um, we meet in Wildwood at a hall and we have we have new families coming coming uh, all the time. And so it's it's interesting because I mean, we, we, in the past, we've just met in houses since basically since the whole time that I've been saved. So it's only been the last, uh, whatever, five, six months that, that, that we've, uh, rented a building and, uh, it, it does bring more people out to hear, to hear the truth, which is interesting. And they, they do get a new experience because we don't, we don't have, uh, like church pews because it, yeah. it's in a hall. So we set up tables basically, and we like sitting in a circle. So we're all facing each other. And I've explained to the people why, why we do that just because it's more of a intimate thing when, when, when we're all looking at each other instead of at, at each other's heads, yeah. which, uh, you know, 
you read a book called Pagan Christianity. I was just going to bring that from. up. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but the church is an organism, not an institution. And so um, I think we need to uh, treat it as such. So we try to, we try to cater to that where it's uh, an intimate thing. We're all sitting around the circle, you know, there's no, there's nobody high and lifted up, you know, <laughs> and uh, um, but yeah, no, we, we have new people coming out and it's exciting that uh, more people are hearing the truth. But I think since I got saved, I, I find most of the people that have got maybe saved through our ministry is, has been a one-on-one -on -one, or they've heard the truth preached and they've been alone somewhere reading, maybe reading their Bible in their room. And it seems like where there's social pressure to, to act a certain way or to, to think, maybe even to think a certain way, it, it often, that point of belief doesn't often happen in a, in a group setting. It's, mm -hmm. it's often later, you know, when they're by themselves. So pretty much like personally, I got saved alone in my car and uh, a lot of the people that are around me that, that got saved around here, they all got saved either with one person telling them the gospel or so forth. So it hasn't been in a true, in a, in a group setting. So I do think the gospel is more of a relational it's passed through more relational intimate means. And, uh, and I'm not sure where I was going with that, but. Okay. Well, that, that makes me think of, uh, Paul talks about how God chose the foolishness of preaching to confound the wise. Right. So, the, the method of just declaring the message, proclaiming the message, it's kind of a, a bit of a lost thing even in our culture now. A lot of modern churches don't have preaching. They don't have anybody proclaiming the Word of God. And I know for myself, I went through the uh, the phase too where I felt like, and I'm, I'm not totally changed my mind on it, the whole idea of house church, like that's all you see in the New Testament. The church that met at so-and-so's house and at so-and-so's house, and they just met from house to house, and they weren't supposed to be like a normal religion that had a building that you had to go to. And now most of Christianity has to go to a particular building that they call a church, but it's the church going to the building, right? So it is, it is a, it's gotten us really mixed up. So I got into that mindset for quite a while too that, Maybe we shouldn't even have a building, and there's probably a good time and place for that. However, it did seem like we kept we would run into that issue where anybody who tried to do just the house gathering is it it just wouldn't happen consistently. There would be no order to it. There'd be no um, ongoing meetings, right? And so even just having a regular place, say if I had a house big enough where that was the meeting place, you know, the the I think it was Priscilla and Aquila. They had a church that met at their house. And that sounds like that was their meeting place. And so if there was mm -hmm. one person who had the house that was set up for it, then you could go there consistently. But if everybody's trying to share their houses, it just never seems to really work, right? Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> right. And it, it, is, it is a lot on, uh, I mean, there's issues with having 40 people in one house, especially here in Alberta. <laughs> we, don't, we don't all have big houses, you know, or little house is 720 square feet right and uh, <laughs> you put 40 40 or 50 people in here and <laughs> might uh overload it a bit it's bursting but, at the seams yeah you're right it does seem it does seem like when you go somewhere and you know like you, you have a church building or you rent a hall things things happen more uh in an organizational way but I, i've debated myself why that is and it seems like it seems like there is a lot of institutional thinking in all of us because what makes 
to me, what makes a gathering successful or legitimate is what is true, what is preached. So if the truth is being preached, that is a legitimate thing. Like when you have Christians together and you're preaching Jesus, that's, that's a good church meeting right there. That's, that's successful. But it seems like if you don't have a proper building, it seems like it's not treated with the same amount of respect. Interesting. And, and I, I do find that unfortunate because like I've, I've heard people say something like, you know, we got together and we sang a few songs and, and then, and there was the preaching and that was it. I mean, I'm thinking that was what? great. I That's mean, what we wanted. <laughs> right. The gospel was preached. Jesus was lifted up. Um, that's that's exactly the, that was the point. But they're looking for for the lights and the pizzazz and the organization. Right. Uh, one thing maybe that that could be lacking, say, in a group like yours is that and I get this criticism from people that I know uh, who would say something like, well, you're a group like yours. It has no structure. It has no uh, order. It has no authority even, right? What do you make of authority? Because Paul would send Titus or Timothy back from, you know, go back to such and such a city and ordain elders in every city. Make sure that there's men that are gifted and qualified and able and apt to teach and so on that have good homes. They're not a new believer anymore. They've established themselves. Ordain them as elders in every one of these cities. That That's obviously some order. That's, some, you know, it doesn't automatically make it a structure. It doesn't mean you have to have president and vice president and board of this and board of that mm -hmm. but there is someone or maybe multiple i think in every case it seems to be multiple people ordained to be elders to be bishops or deacons right yeah oh, i think it'd be helpful and for sure they did ordain elders in every city i don't think it has to be from your exact you know group that the elder has to be what's interesting about us is uh is that we don't we don't have ambitious people here as far as wanting to be the the head and making decisions and so forth and i think maybe it would be helpful if someone was there if there was an issue between you know say uh person to person they had an issue with each other that they could come to somebody and say you know somebody that had the final say and say okay this is what you need to do yeah and and it, that it would be followed through but uh as far as that goes, when the United States Constitution was formed and the United States uh, declared independence in 1776, they were actually against ambition. They didn't want a president that was that's ambitious. Right. And and that's interesting. He didn't he didn't he he would serve because people wanted him to serve. And that was that was it. That was the extent of it. He had no desire for power. He had no desire to be in that headship role. And and which is interesting because the basic uh, men in the group here, everybody's, we're not ambitious. We don't, we don't want to lord over somebody. We don't, we don't want to have power over somebody else. We just get together and, and for the most part, we're all of the same mind. We all basically believe the same tenets, the same gospel. And, uh, we have a little bit of uh, differences on side issues and stuff like that, but it's not a divisive thing at all. Yeah. And so I, I think I think that's great. Yeah. Paul does say that uh, in First Timothy, I think it is, where he says, he de desireth the office of a bishop, desireth a good work. And then he gives the qualification. So it's there is people who have that drive that want to lead, that want to teach, that want to instruct, 
and I don't think they should be thwarted, but they should definitely be examined and qualified. And uh, it doesn't mean that just because they have the desire that they should automatically be put in that position either, right? So, but yeah, and, and then also, I think one of the reasons why uh, that type of leadership of wanting to dominate, wanting to rule over is so disdained by us is we, we kind of have a bit of a, an aversion to that type of authoritarian leadership anyway. And Paul says very clearly that we should not take oversight by constraint but willingly, right? That, and we should not be lording it over the flock, so to speak, but from mm. the way Christ led us, right? He didn't demand followers. He encouraged people to come follow him, and then he laid himself down for us. So, you know, even as a man in the household, I'm, I've been given the responsibility of head of my house. That doesn't give me the rights to go around bossing my wife around or my children around. It puts a weight of responsibility on me to be a man that's followable and that is humble enough to help and to serve and to die for the family, right? It's a totally different style of leadership. Exactly. It's to serve. And you, it, it, it's a flesh thing. You see it in the world. You see it in uh, people with authoritative positions like police officers and, and so forth that uh, the reason they got into it is so they could boss somebody around that's right and and instead of to serve and i noticed that, that when you have elected officials like like the sheriff uh sheriff in the united states an elected official he would go around and he would talk to people we go to a sit-down restaurant when i was driving truck in tennessee and i remember a catfish all you can eat catfish place and we'd stop up there all the time and every time we were there the sheriff would be inside there and he'd be moving from table to table chatting with people you know and uh, you could tell he didn't have that, you know, I'm going to, uh, all I'm here for is to tell you when you're doing something wrong. Um, it was a serve attitude. And I think, I, see. I think uh, from a leadership in a church, that would be a great way. I'm here for you to, right. to serve you and to, to make your Christian life better in some way. Amen. Well, I think we've probably gone uh, about as long as we should. Uh, anything, anything else that you had really hoped you could uh, touch on or you'd wanted to, to make mention of? Um, maybe, maybe just a short little thing on, on Scripture and reading the Scripture in a certain way. And okay. there isn't – I, I listened to Jordan Peterson a little while ago. And he talked about he, his dealings with a Muslim. And I don't know if you watched that one where he had the Muslim, the Muslim was actually debating him. But the Muslim said to him, you, you talk about the Alexandrian or you believe the Alexandrian way of viewing scripture, which is spiritualize everything. So, you know, Cain and Abel, you know, Jordan would say there's a lot of Cain and Abel in each of us. And that's what he got out of the message and so forth. If you read the, the Bible in, a, in that form of thought, you're going to miss the truth of it. And so the, the most important, one of the most important things reading scripture is to read what it says and believe what it says as it is written mm. and, and find you a word for word translation instead of a meaning for meaning, because somebody has inserted their meaning into there. That's a commentary. That's not the scripture. Right. And so I would just say, read, a word for word, I'm not going to go on here and endorse anything, but a word for, for word translation is what you want and believe what it says. 
Amen. Especially uh, when it comes to you don't you don't need to know Greek Romans. or Hebrew, right? What you were going to say, especially in the Book of Romans. Yep, absolutely. Read Romans. Believe what it says. What what what? One thing I'd like to mention is when I got saved, it was like it's so simple and so plain if we just believe what it says, and and that it's just a beautiful thing. And so. Yeah, I just like to leave with that. Leave what it says. Amen. And uh and it'll change your life. Amen. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it's about time it. this worked out. God bless you. Yeah. God bless you. See you, Pete. See ya.